Welcome back to Pondering AI. My name is Kimberly Nevela, and I'm a strategic advisor at SAS. Here in our third season, we invite a diverse group of thinkers and doers to explore how we can create meaningful human experiences and make mindful decisions in the age of algorithms and AI. Today, I'm beyond pleased to bring you Cheryl Kababa. Cheryl is the Chief Design Officer at Substantial, where she conducts research, develops design strategies, and advocates for refocusing design on outcomes. Cheryl joins us today to discuss the hot topic of human experience, also referred to as HX or human-centric design. Welcome, Cheryl. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to talk to you today. So let's start by having you give us a short overview of your journey in design to date. Yeah, so I actually started out as a journalist. Awesome. <laughs> that is what my degree is in. Um, of course, this is this is decades ago, so I'm telling on myself in terms of my age. But mm -hmm. I think um, what was interesting about it is that I came up in the 90s when you know, you could just basically kind of learn how to code things on your own. And so I quickly kind of learned how to code like web pages and things like that. And for my first employer, I, I worked as an intern at the Seattle Times. And one day I got an idea about like building an intranet site for them and being an intern. And like at that time, I don't even know if they had a web page, but they were like, oh, sure. Okay. If you want to build it. So I basically built them their first intranet site. And then I went on to work at Microsoft as a designer. I wasn't actually a developer there, but as a designer, I would like dip into the code sometimes and spent about a decade in product design and then moved into consulting where my focus over the past decade or so has been on design research and strategy. So I do a lot of human-centered design research, inform product strategy, work with a huge diversity of organizations, everyone from technology companies to philanthropy to government entities. And, you know, along the way, try to help folks kind of understand how to better connect the work that they're doing with societal outcomes. So that's in a very short summary, um, what I have experienced in the industry and sort of my trajectory, which is a little bit circuitous. It, it seems crazy today to think that somebody wouldn't have a website, right? That's what you do. I know. <laughs> as a journalist uh, in particular, uh, and probably as a designer as well, it's important to ensure we're all as people say, uh, talking or playing from the same sheet of music. So this idea of human experience or human-centric design, we use HX as, as the shorthand today, is certainly picking up steam. How do you define human experience or human-centric design? And what are the drivers that are powering this trend today? Yeah, so... The term I use most often is human-centered design or HCD. Um, it kind of aligns with the formalized processes within the space. Um, it's often described as design thinking. So if you hear design thinking and human-centered design, they're usually one and the same in terms of processes, sort of philosophy, um, and just methods and ways of doing things. I think oftentimes what people are describing when they're describing human-centered design is actually user-centered design, especially in the technology industry. And so what that means is that 
we are primarily focused on end users of products and services and how they experience kind of the direct benefit of use of our products and services. And essentially the concept of user-centered design picked up steam kind of in the 1980s, like just as you were seeing a lot more digital technology coming into the market. And if you think about early products, early computing products and things like that, they were just designed to work. They weren't designed to be sort of easier for you or anything like that. They were designed to like encapsulate features. I mean, this isn't a computing product, but like take old remote controls or things like that. They were kind of impossible to use, but you could access everything on them. They didn't really prioritize your ability to use them. They prioritized that like everything was there and you had access to all the features and whatnot. That really started to change with Apple. And I think it's basically sort of an evolution that has really oriented around the end user experience as kind of the primary thing to design for. And that's because a lot of technology companies I've seen the benefits of doing this because of examples like Apple, right? Like they see that if you prioritize ease of use, if you reduce friction in products and services, that people are more likely to use them and they're more likely to stick with them too. And so this mindset shift, it was particularly kind of important, especially as computing became such a, you know, central part of everyone's lives you know, just like designers and technologists basically asking themselves, you know, how does the user experience products? What do they find frustrating? Um, What do they find easy? And how do we design in response to that? And I think it's actually the source of a lot of problems. (laughs) Um, And I think we're at the point where we've actually done so much of this too well. And in fact, like the user-centered design process is backfiring on us. And I think this is an interesting and important point for us to drill down in a little bit, because sometimes when I've been having these conversations, folks will say, well, the folks that are talking about HX or as you call it, HCD, uh, human centric design, isn't this just user experience in another form? But it strikes me based on what you're saying that it might be a question of scale or the scales that you're looking at. So user experience is looking at a single individual utilizing or using a product and perhaps we're trying to expand the lens to include not just an individual user, but also a broader group or society or call it humanity if you want to get really, uh, you know, existential. Is that a fair interpretation? Yeah, so a lot of a lot of it is about the framing, right? So when we talk about user-centered design or user experience, the way we're positioning people is in relationship to a product. I mean, that's why they're called users in that space. And I know like, If you ever look at design Twitter, there's like a discussion that flares up every year or whatever that's like, stop calling them users. Honestly, like if you're designing for the use of your product, it's a fair interpretation to call people users. So I think the response to that was thinking about humans and their needs first. I think the drawback is these things are one and the same in terms of how they're executed and the processes involved. And so I think what's missing is that discussion at scale and how we think about humanity and its needs and not just a human and their needs and frustrations, nor a human and their relationship just to a product. Because humans 
as humanity, they have relationships to each other. Groups have relationships to each other. Institutions have relationships to each other. And I think those things are kind of not taken into account in the fundamental processes that are used within human-centered design, user-centered design. And, you know, I keep saying human-centered design, but it's also design thinking. Those things are kind of the same in terms of the process that we're describing. So I, I feel like it's a nice term, but we can't separate it from how it's interpreted and exercised within the field, which is really oriented around individuals and how they use products and services, especially in technology yeah. firms. I think you would see in like things like global health and what have you, they're really, um, you know, there's kind of like a push to orient around communities and how communities respond to things like products and services, interventions, like policy, all of those things. And those are really, um, that's a good evolution of like human centered design, but I still think it, it suffers from many of the same problems, which is we're thinking about how an individual person interacts with a product service or any of those other entities that I just mentioned. And I don't think that's enough. I think we have to think about like society as a whole and what we want out of something, what our needs are collectively and not just what does an individual want or need. Yeah. It's, such a good point. And I do want to dive a little more into where and why design design thinking, as we've traditionally thought about that, has fallen down. But perhaps we can take a little detour to or just some background. I think many of the issues that we're seeing may just be limitations that are becoming apparent as this tech is scaling up. We know, for instance, that algorithms or AI are exceptional pattern matchers, right? They are the ultimate pattern matcher. And people are pretty predictable. I, I think we are often unfailingly and sometimes unfortunately predictable in ways that even we as individuals don't always anticipate. I think we think we're more unpredictable than, than we are. And, and that's particularly yeah. true at scale. So we're creating these patterns that these AI solutions and algorithms can then exploit. And I don't know if that's the right term. So maybe I should just ask the question. Are current AI systems and algorithms exploiting some of these common human traits, such as our predictability? And what are the dangers in that approach? Yeah, I'm sure folks who listen to this particular podcast understand the use of proxies. So it's like, basically, you know, I live in a neighborhood in Seattle and you probably see a lot of like Volvos parked on my street. And oftentimes what platforms do that are using AI is they use things like that, like your purchasing behaviors, your zip code, those kinds of things to be a proxy for things like your political beliefs, even things like, you know, dog breed ownership, right? And so I think that predictability actually allows, yeah, I would use the word exploit. It allows them to kind of exploit those patterns and be able to sell products, to be able to sell advertising, to basically capitalize on our attention. And so, you know, we know there's a lot of pitfalls to that. Like YouTube, of course, is a good example of connecting certain interests. Like my daughter, she started getting interested in these domino videos, you know, where they like build domino structures and they knock them down and they're really elaborate. And it's like, once you watch one of those videos, your feed is going to turn into 
I am a domino obsessive, <laughs> which is like, we share a YouTube login. So I'm kind of like, Oh my God, our feed is so crazy. It's just got like all these different areas of interest. It could be like, Oh, I'm trying to figure out how to fix a leaky sink. So like that instruction oriented around that is going to be mixed with her domino videos and her crafting videos and whatever. So I think part of the issue is just that what this sort of exploitation is always oriented around and basically what it always is meant to lead to is whatever the incentives are of the organization that's designing them, right? And if they are oriented around growth of their user base, and that's essentially how they make money, then that's what's going to be emphasized. And that is what the algorithm is going to be biased towards. So I think it just, you know, requires a little bit of critical thinking on our part as just users of these products and services to kind of understand what's happening. And of course, the dangers of that are like, all of the effects we've been discussing as a society, like polarization, addiction to social media, addiction to our devices, et cetera. And so, yeah, I would view that as a lot of the outcomes that we probably as a society want to interrogate, but it sort of flies in in the face of like the incentives that a lot of platforms have. So why is design thinking as we've traditionally executed it, I suppose, not up to the challenge? And what do we need to be thinking about or focusing on instead? Yeah, I mean, I think the issue with design thinking fundamentally is that, you know, this orientation around users or individuals and how they intersect with products, especially technology products, are based on this assumption that if you're designing for the benefit of your individual user, then you're likely making good decisions, good design decisions, right? So designing things like for efficiency and for capturing your attention seem like the right thing to do if you're designing for the individual. Why? Because you're fulfilling what they probably want. So even as you're doing user research, it's like, oh, I really like this. And that sort of intersecting with what we understand about things like behavioral psychology and how people basically interact with these things that grab their attention, it feels like you're doing them a service, right? Because you're getting them to use your product. You're getting them to love your product. Like you're getting them to basically engage with it meaningfully and probably share things on that platform. And an individual user might be like, yeah, I love this platform. I love TikTok. It's so funny. Like everything, you know, about it, all the, all the people I'm fans of on there and that I discover the way people are creative on it. But it's also like junk food, right? (laughs) Like, I don't know if you have that feature on your phone that tells you how much screen time you've used in a week. But week after week, I am horrified by mine. Like sometimes it's like (laughs) you've spent two hours and 40 minutes on your phone each day. And this is down. This is down 15%. And I'm just like, my God, where did that time go? And I think what it means is like, it's not good for us to be doing things like scrolling en masse. Mm-hmm. Isa Raskin, who's at Center for Humane Technology and who used to work for Facebook and is 
and oftentimes the infinite scroll is attributed to him has said, you know, I don't know that this is something that we should want as humans. (laughs) It solved the problem, right? It was like, what do people want? Oh, they want to be able to continue scrolling. They want a sense of randomness, which is kind of based on, I believe, BJ Fogg's psychology theories. And so they provide just that amount of randomness and make it interesting enough for you to be like, oh, I've been scrolling for an hour and I like, what, what have I even done? It's like giving people junk food instead of like nutrition, right? We are providing that and it's considered in many ways or has been considered good user experience design because the user experience is catering to whatever it is you want. So I think in some ways, like I've sought to prioritize humanity rather than individual humans in my practice. And one way of doing that is one kind of thinking about societal outcomes um, and using systems thinking to broaden basically our lens and be able to explicitly think about unintended consequences. So talk a little bit more about systems thinking and how that would help us address some of these gaps and challenges you've identified. Yeah, so I think there are three key concepts to systems thinking, and I've been thinking about it specifically within the realm of the design practice, because I I do feel like there are good things about things like advocating for humans and how they experience products and services, but how do we kind of broaden our thinking so that it's not this narrow approach of having someone kind of test a product and be like, oh yeah, I can use this or I can't use this, or this is how it'll fit into my life. Um, And conceptually, I think the things we need to be thinking about are interconnectedness. Like what are the things that are connected with someone's experience with what we're doing or what we're creating? Who are other people who are involved? Who are people who we might be affecting who might not be an end user? Who are people who might be marginalized within the experience of our product or outside of the experience of our product, but they're still affected by how other people use it. Um, The second concept is causality. So just thinking about like cause and effect and understanding that there are radiating effects to whatever it is you're designing or doing. Um, You know, Facebook has been learning this a million times over, you know, whether or not they're doing anything about it is a different story, but like, I mean, I think they are actually, there are many fine people there who are actually doing, trying to like solve for these things. But at the same time, I think it's kind of like, well, there's some causality there that's related to the incentives within your organization, right? Like, what does your leadership want? What are they trying to achieve? What are they trying to gain? And so you don't want to be that salmon swimming up upstream that's like trying to kind of fight the downstream effects of, of trying to constantly design for growth and things like that, that might not result in societal health, right? So there's like this idea that everything we do has rating and effects and it's worthwhile to kind of interrogate what those are. And then lastly, there's wholeness. So I think just thinking about systems as a whole, how if you are working on products and services, how your products might intersect with other entities. So like, you know, at the institutional level, like how does it intersect with government? How does it intersect with regulation? How does it intersect with different communities in different places? So 
that you're not just designing a product on the West Coast in the U.S. that's going to be used in other countries, and yet you don't have any sort of cultural touch points or reference to how people might use or even abuse your products. So I think I've been trying to emphasize those three things, which are like interconnectedness, causality, and wholeness. And these are kinds of the things that in an ostensibly empathy-based practice like design thinking or human-centered design that you sort of lose sight of because they're kind of abstract, right? Like you have to kind of do some analysis from an abstract point of view, but you should be involving like stakeholders who you normally wouldn't involve, like in your decision-making process. Are there other everyday examples of how focusing on a user alone may wittingly or unwittingly impact our collective human experience? Yeah, I think we've all experienced products or what have you that give us that sort of feeling of like, I'm unsure about this. And is this actually good for me? I think um, I've written in the past about things like autocomplete, and how uneasy it makes me because I'm kind of like, yeah, this is easy and I will use it in the moment. At the same time, I'm really cognizant that I'm training a machine to kind of learn about how we should be communicating and that eventually all of this will converge into the same style of writing, the same style of thinking. You know, I'm sure like folks have written a LinkedIn message and it's like, blah, 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 blah. And there's those three buttons and it says, sounds great. And I'm just like, that was what I was thinking about typing, but I'm going to fight you and type something else now <laughs> so that I'm not feeding. Yeah, I refuse. I'm not going to feed this. I'm not that predictable. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that predictable. Um, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna write sounds good instead and put a period behind <laughs> But yeah, it's like, I think just thinking about the repercussions of things is really important, especially when you're designing for like these broad systems that have machine learning and AI. And it's just so easy because of the nature of these systems to, as you said, really lean in and emphasize and design for, and in fact, execute in a way that just prioritizes convenience and uniformity, which doesn't ultimately, I mean, that, that's not the world I want to live in either. Right. I mean, I'm currently thinking about selling a house and they're talking about staging, you know, and I'm like, every single picture looks exactly the same. And I actually live in this house. So yeah, there's a mark in my wall and no, I'm not going to paint it. Or, you know, I don't want the exact same stage furniture. Like there's something about that that I find just so, so sucking, right? Like yes. it feels fake in, in, in a very strange sense. And certainly that's not the only way these things can be applied. But, you know, as we think about interconnectedness and causality and that wholeness, I also start to go back to this conversation that often happens around, I'm starting to call it the ethos of unintended consequences, that it, folks are sort of saying, how, it's not possible for us to really anticipate everything. So how can you hold me responsible for things that I can't imagine? Interested in your thoughts about how folks are either leaning into or, or avoiding this conversation about unintended consequences. Yeah, what you said about that, which is like, how can we possibly anticipate everything? I've gotten that question multiple times. They talk about like, hey, product teams need to just basically integrate some sort of interrogation of what potential ramifications are going to be of your product and not just like, hey, this is good and we're trying to make this happen and this is the positive outcome to it. 
every single thing we do has some sort of ramifications. It could be oriented around who you aren't designing for versus like who you are designing for. It could be oriented around how the system plays out, like in terms of machine learning, and that could result in unintended consequences. I think the problem people have is like, they have this idea that it's sort of zero sum, like you have to anticipate everything and plan for it and be able to design for it in advance. And that's not reasonable. Whereas I'm like, well, if you just think a little bit more about it, there are probably some things you could avoid, or at the very least anticipate if it happens. So I think there's a, you know, there's a few things. And I kind of think about how product teams operate through three lenses as well, which is like, what's your organization like? What kinds of processes are you using? And then also what kind of product are you designing? Like what's the value proposition and how might it affect people? And so from the organizational standpoint, like one of the things I think about a lot, especially just personally as a woman of color in tech is like how little representation there is in a lot of the creation of technology products. So like it or not, we kind of look at things through our own biased lens. Um, And I think for a long time, it was it was accepted, particularly within design thinking, human-centered design, that you could be, let's say, a design researcher from any type of background, and you could just parachute in from outer space or whatever, do research with a community, gather inf- information and insights, and then parachute out and just basically synthesize what you learned and be like, this is how we design for them. And I don't think that's really a tenable stance anymore, nor should it have ever been. I remember maybe like 15 years ago, I was in an interview with a company and I was kind of like, yeah, you need to do design research, let's say with, with mothers to understand what their experience is like, particularly as they're still nursing, et cetera. And I remember the design research director saying, well, you don't really need to do that. You just need to be a mother to understand that. And I was so inoculated in like the ways of design research and how like we come to it with neutrality and we can learn about all sorts of people that I was kind of offended by that. I was like, well, you don't need a mother on your team. You could have somebody who's like, you know, a male 20 something who's never had kids and he could go into the field and do research with moms and like understand their experience. But I think I've like come full circle on this and I'm like, yeah, this really applies in terms of, I think what he was saying that design research director was, we all come to the table with certain biases. And so you need to have people on your team who are actually like a mother who might have experienced this or might be experiencing this. And it's a testament that we face so many problems that are oriented around like racial biases and things like that of like how undiverse our technology sector is. So I think in terms of things like machine learning, um, I know Ruha Benjamin has done a lot of writing in this space. I think her book is called uh, Race After Technology. And she basically says that when we're kind of designing products, especially if they're scaling and are involving AI, you need to audit it from an equity lens 
Um, and so, you know, you have to think about like, what are the unintended consequences of designing this from at scale? How should, you know, AI systems prioritize individuals over society and vice versa? And then when, when is introducing an AI system, the right answer? Um, and when is it not, which is like actually a question that doesn't get asked a lot is like, when is it not? Because we sometimes just assume we're on this trajectory where these things need to happen. They're predetermined. And sometimes it's just not the right use of technology for the kinds of problems that we're solving. And that may raise another question. You, you mentioned that sometimes we just, we run after it because the technology can do it. It's something we mm-hmm. can accomplish, whether or not it's something we should really do or really need to do. And so it spurs the question of what should be the role of data science or algorithms or algorithmic decision-making in design? So do algorithms inform design or does design inform, you know, what we go after with an algorithm? Yeah, that's a really good question. I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been doing a lot of work in education and the use, for example, of AI to evaluate, you know, used in assessment spaces in children's education is really unsettling to me. And a lot of like the justification in the space for integrating AI ultimately has to do with the convenience of those who are doing the assessments, right? Whether we're talking about instructors or we're talking about districts or like decision makers or you know, state governments, like the people who are using assessments to make decisions, you know, in the, whether in the right way or the wrong way, assessments are misused all the time. Um, But I think oftentimes it's not really thinking about like, how does this benefit students one? And also like, how are students potentially harmed by this? And so if you know AI is going to be part of what you're designing for, it actually needs to inform how you design products. Like you need to think about not just how AI will execute itself within your user experience or what have you. You have to think about kind of the impact and the potential pitfalls to doing it in this way. Um, I know practitioners don't always have control over that, which is why I always advocate for like, if you are thinking this way, you should be involved in like, the upfront strategy for these kinds of products and services that may scale up in this way so that these questions and prompts can be raised early on before it gets into a space of like, okay, now we're just doing this and, you know, it is what it is. So knowing the potential for data collection and how that shapes things like machine learning needs to be kind of integrated into design processes And maybe in sort of a reciprocal way, right? Like you can create design so that it's meant to account for that. And that should also inform what kind of data needs to be collected. We're dealing with this right now. In fact, I'm wrestling with this notion of disaggregating student data, for example. So understanding how students experience things like educational software, like are, for example racial minority students experiencing educational software in a different way in which it like biases against them. But what you need to do is you need to somehow collect that information to begin with. And 
there's terrible sort of privacy concerns that are oriented around that. So I would never suggest this kind of decision-making is easy in terms of what kind of data you collect and how you use it. But there should be some sort of reciprocal relationship with the design process. There shouldn't be just assumptions that certain types of data are going to be collected and certain types of data are going to be used in specific ways. One of my tenets as a design researcher is always question the framing. Like, don't just assume that the framing is as it stands. And you should at least ask the questions. And you might be shut down, but you might also surface some potential issues that no one actually has thought about because they're just trying to figure out how to make things work. And making things work is a fairly narrow focus, I think we've <laughs> we've learned. So we could go on for a while. Are there specific steps or suggestions you can leave with organizations or individuals for them to be able to really assess their practices and ensure that humans are being mindfully considered, if not central to the design of their products and processes? Yeah, I think I think the key, and this is probably not a satisfying answer, but you have to look at it in a nuanced way. You can't just be like, I am serving humans and be like, so therefore I'm going to talk to them and the decisions I make are going to be good because I'm listening to them because people are not always good at like stating what they want. Um, and also what people want and what people need could be two different things. Like, wasn't it Henry for like, I hate bringing up this quote, but wasn't it Henry Ford who said something like people would ask for faster horses. Um, that's often used in human-centered design research to justify a design researcher's need to like interpret data that is coming from people. But I don't Mm. like, I think that's actually not a good way of using it. But I do think there is something to that in which we have to kind of think holistically and also in a nuanced way about what do we need as a society? So broad as a collective, but then you know, also taking individuals who are within that system into account without necessarily like designing only for convenience or what have you. I've been looking at this discussion on Twitter about an edit button. This raises its head like every, I don't know, a few months, years or whatever. Elon Musk, who's like a passive board member or something on Twitter now, put out a poll the other day that said, this is really important. Do you want an edit button? And I don't know if it was meant to be an April Fool's joke or something, but the majority of people said, yes, we want an edit button. And the edit button is a really good example of you have to totally think about the potential repercussions just because people say they want it because they're trying to avoid typos doesn't mean it's the right solution. Like people retweet tweets all the time. Imagine if you retweeted something and somebody edited it to be hate speech like you're basically co-signing on that and like i don't think a lot of people who are using the product if they're like i wish there was an edit button are thinking that far ahead but like as designers and technologists we do need to be thinking that far ahead we need to be thinking farther ahead than elon musk like when he's talking about like do you want an edit button let's make this happen i think honestly he was just trolling but you know whatever (laughs) Anytime I have to think about him, I'm a little bit like, why? But, um, but it does, it's, it's like a good, very direct example of like, 
you, you need to integrate into your process what that's going to look like. How, what are the radiating effects going to be of that? Like, how is it going to actually affect institutions, right? Like, if you add in an edit button and you can't just, like, do research with your end users and be like, okay, they all want this, we're doing it. You have to kind of think about what are the downstream consequences of that and let that inform your decision making, too. I remember when I was working on the tarot cards of tech, which are like a little pack of prompts that help you think about things like what if mother nature were your client? Like, who are you leaving out of your process? Like it's, it's a good series of prompts to think about unintended consequences. And I remember as we were creating it, um, one of my friends said, what if we had a card that said, what if you did nothing? And everyone laughed and everything. And then I was like, wait, but hmm. That is a possibility sometimes. You can actually do nothing and that has an impact, right? And we didn't include it, of course, because like, you know, our audience, our technologists, the orient towards action, et cetera. And so it's hard to justify that. And it almost requires an entire philosophical discussion in order to include a prompt like that. So we left it out. But I think about it a lot. And almost any time I'm in the position of designing anything, I make sure I ask myself that question. I tend to agree with you. I don't think we do ask that. And you know, one of the issues a lot of people say is that this idea of failing fast or move fast and break things or just make it work assumes, as you said, we're oriented to action. And sometimes the action perhaps we should be taking is to take no action at all and really ask, like, is this is this necessary? Is this needed? And, and what will be the consequence of that? And this very much harkened back to a conversation that I also had with Kate O'Neill. And she said, we need to really think about, as in your edit button example, not just when things go really, really wrong, right? There's consequences intended and unintended of that. But what if it goes really, really right and people mm-hmm. really, really use it? What's What happens then? And so the thread I've taken from this entire conversation is, you know, just because we can't anticipate everything doesn't mean we should try to anticipate nothing, but also that it's not a single question or a single point of view or a single lens. We need to look at this from all different aspects and and facets to the best of our abilities to be able to really move, I suppose, the the world and and ourselves forward in in a meaningful way. So any final thoughts to share with the audience? I do think, you know, just like a tenet that I reinforce in my practice is, as I mentioned earlier, always question the framing. And then secondly, it's like everything is just everything's more nuanced than you think it is. And so how do we slow down and have those discussions in order to improve our decision making? And I don't think about it as like, necessarily right or wrong decision making anymore. I think about it as sort of a spectrum and you should be just trying to continually grow and make better decisions. We're all on this journey, right? I'm not going to say like, I know how to do all of this or that we have like the perfect tools in our practice or anything, but I do think continuous improvement is really important in terms of just trying to answer these questions better, look at things in a more nuanced way and basically kind of slow down what you're doing, especially if you're working in technology. Yeah, fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Cheryl. There's a lot to think about and for folks to take away. So I really appreciate you joining us today. 
Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was really nice talking to you. Awesome. Hopefully we can entice you back in the future then. Now, next up, we are going to continue the conversation with Dr. Erica Thompson, and she's going to walk us through the gaps to be minded when using algorithms to make or influence decisions. So to ensure you don't miss our enlightening journey through what she calls model land, subscribe now. <laughs>